This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham from New Matilda joined me to talk about the latest in federal politics. Then, biologist and writer Merlin Sheldrake joined me from London to discuss his new book, Entangled Life, How Fungi Make Our Worlds, Change Our Minds and Shape Our Futures. Then, finally, poet and aged care reform advocate Dr Sarah Holland-Batt joined me to talk about the many issues surrounding the coronavirus outbreaks in aged care homes in Victoria. We also discuss the disturbing ageism that exists in our society today. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 FM with me, Amy Mullins, and I'm delighted to have with me Ben Eltham, who is the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, and we're talking all about federal politics, the latest in federal politics, what's been happening in the week, and of course a lot has been happening in state and federal politics, so we will get straight into it. Hi Ben, how's it going? Hi Amy, how are you? Doing pretty good. How are you doing? I'm okay, mate. Yeah, yeah. Trucking on, you know, doing my best. As everyone is, aren't they? Yeah, I think so. It's a difficult time for Victorians, especially Melbournians. Um, You know, and obviously the the press conference from Daniel Andrews on Sunday was disappointing for a lot of people. Um, But, you know, I think, you know, um, we've got to make the best of it that we can. And and I think, you know, people are pretty understanding on the whole of, of what's required to try and get out of this. Yeah, and if we look at the strategy um, and what has what was implemented when we saw stage four being implemented, not just the you know the first um, tranche of changes, but also the industry wide changes, there was a lot of um, apprehension. But people seemed to be at the time accepting of it, given how out of control the case numbers were every day. You know, up in the seven hundreds at some points, and also seeing you know thirty year olds in intensive care. We have seen people across all age brackets die from coronavirus. So, you know, this has been a really long journey, hasn't it, in terms of stage four and stage three in regional Victoria. And um, it was interesting to hear that, you know, the, the response to the Sunday announcement has been very mixed. And of course, that's understandable. Um, but we have heard some very, very loud voices from certain parts of the community who have said that this um, this exit strategy, this kind of staged plan out of lockdown across a number of months is not what they wanted, particularly thinking about small, medium and large business and various lobby groups and their um, spokespeople. And um, certainly it has got a lot of coverage and a lot of focus in terms of the economic um, impact of this rather than, I guess, a holistic look at it. Yeah, I, I've been quite disappointed with the media coverage since Sunday afternoon. It seemed to, tended to have focused on people with a, a, a vested interest in opening up, you know, which I think is fine. There's no doubt that business is hurting at the moment and that people are struggling. You know, um, I have a lot of sympathy for small business people in particular trying to deal with the current restrictions. Um, but there's no doubt that, um, you know, the, the media coverage has tended to be um, very much focused on the complaints of business. Um, and that's, I think, also been driven by the increasingly partisan political environment around the restrictions with uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison and indeed uh, Treasurer Josh Frydenberg and Health Minister Greg Hunt, who are Victorians, coming out 
and very strongly criticising the Andrews government over its roadmap announced on Sunday. So we've seen a complete breakdown in any kind of national unity when it comes to Canberra and Melbourne in terms of how to deal with the, the Melbourne lockdown. Mm. Well, we were praising this National Cabinet unity approach, um, you know, a number of weeks ago and saying how great it was to see that kind of um, coming together and compromise um, so that there is, a, a, I guess, a consistent approach at some level for some levels of um, policy, obviously not for aged care. But um, I would like to ask a little bit about um, Scott Morrison's response as well to this, because, you know, as soon as Daniel Andrews released this plan, um, we saw a, a, a media release direct from the Prime Minister and, of course, his um, Cabinet Ministers really saying they disagreed very much with the roadmap. They said it was too slow, it needed to happen faster um, and, and you know, there have been a lot of kind of rhetoric and threats thrown about. And to me, I was quite surprised that um, that someone would come out and disagree given that uh, the, the state is being guided by doctors and epidemiologists and data rather than um, being politically motivated. What do you think about that? Because it seems like on the, on the face of it, Scott Morrison, if he's disagreeing with Daniel Andrews, is disagreeing with medical advice. Well, that's exactly right. In fact, it's got to the point now where we've got Greg Hunt openly questioning the epidemiological modelling of the Victorian government. And I'm quoting friendly epidemiologists suggesting that Daniel Andrews has got it wrong. Um, I think this is a terrible place for the COVID response to be in now. We've now got um, the authorities in Canberra and the authorities in Melbourne at loggerheads over um, how to how to respond to the lockdown, how to sort of um, get out of the, the current situation, which, by the way, you know, you have to say that the current lockdown is working, right? Yeah. Um, case numbers are now down um, to about 50 to 60 a day. That's a long way from 700 at the worst of the outbreak. Um, but, you know, it's very clear that big business is furious about uh, the extended timeline that Andrew's announced on Sunday, um, and that's channeled into the Liberal Party, which has just pretty much lost the plot down here, particularly the Victorian <laughs> Liberal opposition, um, are frothing at the mouth, frankly, um, about it, you know. Um, so um, we've, we've seen a, a complete return to partisanship and a complete breakdown of that kind of consensus model that we saw a few months ago. And that includes Morrison, Frydenberg and Hunt sniping from the sidelines of the Victorian response. I don't think it's helpful. Um, whether the modelling is right or not, I think, is an open question and it does deserve media scrutiny. Um, but my problem is that when the media gets business people in to complain about the lockdown, what they're essentially doing is getting people who have a financial incentive for relaxation in to, to spruik in favour of their own vested interest. Um, you know, there's open questions about whether a relaxation now is a good idea or not, um, but clearly the business community don't have the expertise to make that call, and that's my problem with the media coverage, um, you know, highlighting their, their concerns here. Mm. Uh, so, you know, when we've got epidemiologists at 20 paces arguing about the modelling, I think that's a, a – It's on the one hand, it's good to have the scrutiny of that, you know. Uh, on the other hand, um, I don't know if it's really helping – no. Well, I mean, 
Um, as we know, modelling is modelling. It's not, um, you know, a predictive science. You can't actually predict the future. And, of course, we've seen numbers um, go way higher than we even predicted. So modelling can work both ways and it's very much um, difficult. But you do need to have a plan um, and it is interesting, you know, we see, we've see we seen other m much more minority voices come out and support Daniel Andrews um, on this plan and, of course, Brett Sutton, the Chief Health Officer. Um, but they have really been minority views and, you know, the loudest have been the Business Council, um, have been, you know, people like Innes Wilcox um, and, uh, and we've not really heard as much from places like, you know, the Australian Council of Social Services, people who are representing those who are um, financially and socially vulnerable and are absolutely also concerned by, you know, this, this lockdown um, in the other sense. They don't want to, to get coronavirus. Um, maybe they have a health condition that they're really concerned by. You know, we're not getting the flip side, the, the other voices that, um, to balance it out. No, I've heard no interviews with union leaders or indeed of workers over the last couple of days. Um, you know, it'd be, not, it'd be interesting to ask some people who work in an abattoir what they think about relaxing the lockdown at this point. You know, um, mm. you know, when it's a life or death situation about going to work, you know, um, I think those kind of people, their voices haven't been heard in this debate very recently. And I'd like to hear more of what those kind of workers think about um, the rush to try and relax. Um, you know, the other point I'd make is that if you look at other countries that have relaxed um, after you know, coming out of a lockdown, um, they're seeing cases spike up again. Uh, France and Spain did a relaxation uh, about a month or so ago. Um, France had 15,000 new cases over the weekend. Um, you know, cases are ticking back up again in the United Kingdom that's had a relaxation. And that is pretty... Um, that's not surprising, I wouldn't have thought, because there's no vaccine to this virus. The virus remains highly infectious, um, easy to spread, um, and very dangerous. So, um, you know, the conditions of the pandemic haven't changed. What's changed is people's patience with mm. dealing with, a, with an economically damaging lockdown. Yeah, that's so true. Um, and obviously one of those factors is summer in Europe, given that uh, so many people do leave and go to the country, particularly I'm thinking France, um, during July, August. And so, you know, this is another driver when people see good weather, they want to be outside. It's no longer, um, you know, tolerable to be indoors all the time. And of course, that means that a number of people kind of push the, the limits of the rules. And um, I know that I've certainly seen that happening um, here in Victoria when there is sunshine and I understand people's frustrations, but it does kind of um, put one on edge when we're thinking about um, the fact that, of course, Victoria is heading into summer um, right where now our last kind of stage of um, restrictions are lifted and we're in a quote-unquote COVID normal situation, whatever that will be, um, you know, that that does create a lot of unknowns in terms of, um, you know, behaviour of, of many people and whether they'll be as patient during summer and beautiful spring weather as they were during winter. Yep, absolutely. And the other flashpoint has been the contact tracing with mm. Morrison openly throwing shade on Victoria's contact tracing response. Now, I'm not really qualified or expert enough to say whether Victoria's contact tracing has improved since the obvious failures that we saw um, after the hotel quarantine failure. 
Um, the Victorian government maintains that the contact tracing has improved as case numbers have come down. They've been able to have more time to get on top of the, the tracing more quickly. Um, you know, New South Wales is considered to be very good at contact tracing and that's why they're able to hold their kind of low numbers at that level that they're getting in New South Wales at the moment, kind of bumping along in the tens or dozens or so. Um, but, you know, again, this is, this is the federal government um, you know, openly questioning Victoria's health response. Uh, I don't know if that's helpful. Um, it, it certainly signals a kind of end of the consensus model, but it also, I think, shows that, um, that there's pretty choppy waters ahead politically, I think, mm. for both the, the federal and the Victorian government. Uh, another thing that Morrison is committed to doing um, is to continue to reduce Victoria's uh, JobKeeper payments so that the rate of JobKeeper will go down um, later in September, even though Victoria remains in lockdown. That, to me, seems a pretty punitive decision, given that um, a lot of people remain out of work and are not able to work because of the restrictions. But Morrison is going ahead with that decision. Well, do you know, uh, I was reading just yesterday um, a, a kind of amusing but depressing quote, um, which I'll paraphrase from the Prime Minister, that he thought people could just supplement it with a part-time job. Um, which was laughable, really, because obviously part-time work is really hard to come by at the moment, given that, you know, massive industries that um, supply part-time work, like hospitality and retail, are certainly um, very much in, in crisis at the moment. So, I mean, it's a choice, isn't it, Ben, to actually not extend JobKeeper and, um, and to suggest that anyone could just easily find some part-time work? It's absolutely a choice. I mean, the comment itself is ridiculous, but it highlights a bigger problem for Morrison, which is that, you know, he's keen to blame Victoria on the current economic troubles mm -hmm. um, to say that, you know, the, the economy would be recovering if it weren't for Victoria going back into lockdown and having this devastating outbreak. Now, that's true, but what's the federal government going to do about it? If you reduce the stimulus payments, then that's going to further damage the Victorian economy and further delay the economic recovery. Um, I wouldn't have thought you'd be wanting to do that as the federal government worried about the economic recovery. Uh, and, you know, I think the, the big problem for Morrison actually comes next year. Let's say Victoria does get on top of the current outbreak and we do get to open up eventually, um, you know, um, uh, let's hope we do. Um, at that point, the economy will still be in a deep recession. Um, and I think all of the political pressure will then come on to Morrison and Frydenberg in quite a sustained way because the economy is not coming back anytime soon. You know, even the Reserve Bank forecasts that unemployment will be 7% out to 2020, the end of 2021. Uh, that's a deep, deep recession. Uh, and that means a lot of pain for a lot of voters. Uh, so I think, you know, at the moment, Morrison is playing politics to try and distract from his obvious problems in some of the federal portfolios. Mm, including aged care, which we <laughs> won't get into care. again. We'll, yeah. I'm talking about that in the last hour, but um, it is really disturbing to see this kind of constant deflection and distraction and that it's actually working in the media. Um, and, uh, and it's really surprising to see that given, um, you know, how robust our journalism is meant to be. Uh, one interesting point I wanted to raise, um, and it's kind of reared its ugly head, uh, is 
a number of issues in media diversity um, and also, of course, the government, federal government's um, plans to charge uh, companies like Facebook and Google for um, the news that they they use. Um, so I wanted to bring up a couple of points and feel free to pick up on either. Um, one is, of course, the uh, AAP, the Newswire service that we now have seen has become a not-for-profit instead of a for-profit model. And uh, the fact that they've come out with a crowdfunding campaign and a lot of concerns over the fact that News Corp is planning to create a rival wire service to them, um, which does bring up a lot of questions as to why they would do that. And then, of course, um, the, the second one, which... Uh, I'm sure you're across, which is Google and Facebook and um, the, the threats we've seen from these major corporations uh, based over in America in terms of their strong disagreement with the Morrison government's plans. First up, what are those plans and um, what do you think about the stalemate that's emerging? This is quite a complex uh, area, so it might be hard to unpick quickly, but uh, basically the ACCC has been looking into the, the market dominance, the kind of oligopoly of Facebook and Google for a while now. Um, it announced a review a couple of years ago into Facebook and Google's dominance, particularly of online advertising. And the eventual plan that they came up with was to force Facebook and Google to pay media outlets for the use of their news articles. So whenever you share an article on Facebook, um, you at the moment, um, the, the companies that, um, that write the news, that publish that news, they don't really get any kind of copyright payments or any kind of uh, uh, payments from the big tech platforms for the use of that news information on their, on their platform. Um, they do, of course, direct advertising back to the news websites, which you know Google and Facebook point out it's worth hundreds of millions of dollars to the news publishers. Um, but it doesn't um, it doesn't uh, stop the fact that Facebook and Google now completely dominate online advertising, which is now the largest right. form of advertising, and that has directly threatened the business model of for-profit news providers. So the ACCC solution was to get Facebook and Google to pay the news providers. Now, as you can imagine, Facebook and Google are not happy about that. Uh, Google has run ads across its platform in Australia complaining about the change, um, and Facebook went the whole kind of nuclear option and basically threatened to stop sharing news altogether on Facebook of any kind. So they would basically, um, if you tried to share an article from, say, The Age or from The Guardian on Facebook, that would just disappear into the ether uh, under what they say that they would respond to this ACCC guideline. So um, basically, you've got the big tech platforms at war with both the ACCC and the news publishers. Uh, and it's a negotiating tactic, and who knows where we're going to end up. Now, mm. um, a lot of people have said, well, why should we be that sympathetic to these news publishers? You know, they've had 20 years to cope with digital. They've failed to adapt their business models. They're going broke because they're not good enough. Um, you know, well, maybe Facebook and Google are right. Um, that's all well and good, but, of course, the, the problem is if you accept that argument, you basically accept that um, – you know, a couple of billionaires in Silicon Valley will end up controlling Australia's entire information scape. Now, do you think that's a good idea? I personally don't. I wouldn't have adopted the ACCC's rule. I would like to see the federal government simply tax the big tech platforms, actually just tax them, um, and use that money to fund um, primarily the ABC and SBS, like primarily public sector news um, 
that's not the road that the ACCC has gone down. And so now we've got this kind of very big battle between the tech platforms and the local news publishers, especially Nine and especially News Corp. Yeah, it is um, It is interesting to watch because uh, I did see a lot of international news services, including Bloomberg, pick up this story and run it as their main story when Facebook uh, made that threat. So it'll be interesting to see what does happen. But It has my- big, yeah, big international implications because yeah. um, when France tried to do this to Google, um, Google actually did the same thing. It banned uh, sharing of French news sites in France and the French government eventually caved in. So there's a lot of attention being paid to Australia to see whether the ACCC can make this stick. If they can make this stick, it might be a template for other nations to try and regulate these big tech platforms. And that's why Zuckerberg and, uh, you know, Sheryl Sandberg and all of those tech giants over in America, that's why they're so worried about this. Yeah. Gosh, it'd be nice if they blocked the fake news when they decided to block the actual news if they were going to go for it. <laughs> that, that's the yeah, that's the crazy thing. Like if Facebook follow th- follows through on their threat, basically they're not going to block fake news, yeah. but they will block real news. That would be the, the outcome. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. I can't believe we're laughing, but it is funny, but not uh, funny at the same time. You're laughing because we're not crying. Yeah, yeah. basically. Um, there's another laughing because we're not crying. It's probably more um, the British people who are doing that, but it's uh, the fact that they've received the gift that is Tony Abbott. What on earth has happened that we've uh, managed to palm him off to the UK? This is extraordinary. and uh, But is. perhaps, <laughs> you know, we, we're used to thinking <laughs> of 2020 as a crazy time, but the idea that any sovereign government would want to adopt Tony Abbott <laughs> is perhaps the most extraordinary thing that's happened in the whole year. Um, yes, the Johnson government has appointed Tony Abbott, no less than Australia's former Prime Minister, to be their new trade spokesman. Uh, and he will be uh, officially part of the British government as their trade negotiator. Um, this, of course, comes at a time when um, talks with the EU over uh, Brexit continue to implode. So the British government's once again um, struggling to come up with some kind of deal with the EU on how to get a trade trade deal with Europe, let alone other countries, now they're importing Tony Abbott to help them. Mm. And this has led to, of course, much hilarity, not not only in Australia, but amongst uh, the British media as they've pulled up some of Tony's greatest hits, you know, his (laughs) misogynistic, homophobic comments over the years. Mm. Let's not forget climate change as well. Uh Uh-huh, that's right. Because remember, in, in the UK, climate action on climate is bipartisan and the Conservative government remains committed to reducing emissions, completely unlike, of course, Australia. So, um, yeah, I mean, Abbott has now been appointed, so he's now Boris Johnson's problem to, to try and solve. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think... Um, on a more serious tip, this is probably totally in keeping with the Johnson government. It's signalling yeah. once again that it wants to appoint a conservative culture warrior to, um, you know, reinforce its credentials as a, a populist right-wing government. Mm. Well, at least given that he is such a strong monarchy or monarchist, he can be closer to the Queen than he ever has been. So um, there's there's that benefit for Tony, isn't there? 
I thought the funniest comment of this was by the cartoonist John Kudelko, who pointed out that uh, the real winner of this trade was whoever uh, was able to trade Tony Abbott to the UK from Australia, because <laughs> that's the best trade of the entire deal. <laughs> we still we're looking for that person. So if anyone knows the identity, <laughs> genius move. Yeah, yeah. Text it in. Let us know. We're very very interested in uh, that legend. So. Um, Just finally, Ben, in terms of uh, federal politics, there are a number of other issues, but one that really um, got a number of the senators, the crossbench senators particularly, um, and also the lower house uh, Labor Party and and other crossbenchers, really angry, um, was the coalition government's approach to debating, i.e. not debating, um, their proposed amendments to the Environment um, Act, the EPBC Act, um, and it was put to the lower house on Thursday towards the end of that day. A number of members of that house sought to make amendments to it to improve it. Um, They were denied and debate was also quashed. And so essentially any debate on the bill was gagged and it was pushed through the lower house right before the sitting week ended. That's really got a number of people um, angry and, and saying that this is not how democracy works. (laughs) <laughs> and, of course, now it's up into the, the Senate. What do you think of these political tactics and uh, is it just kind of predictable? Well, uh, ramming controversial uh, legislation through Parliament is often exactly how democracy works in this mm. country uh, and that's that's precisely what's happened in the case of this bill. Uh, this bill is Trojan horse. Uh, it's not about reforming the Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Act at all. It's about weakening it. Um, uh, the amendments do a number of things to make it easier to do coal seam gas and coal mining, uh, and they also devolve a lot of the regulatory powers to the states. Uh, so far from strengthening the conservation, uh, it'll actually weaken it, and that's, of course, why the environment movement is horrified at what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all up to the Senate now, and I think there'll be a vigorous debate in the Senate. Um, but, you know, the government will probably find it easier to get the numbers on this kind of legislation than it will on, say, university fees, uh, because if you look at who the the senators in the crossbench are, they're mainly regional, um, and some of them will be attracted to the idea of the pro-development aspects of this bill, Um, but it will be a disaster for environmental regulation if it goes through. I mean, just to take one example of one of the things that it does, uh, it removes the so-called water trigger to the current EPBC Act. So it means that uh, there's no longer any kind of regulation on um, the amount of water that, say, coal mines or gas developments could could use as part of that uh, regulatory approval process. So that's just one of the things that it does. It's it's really bad. Yeah, it is really bad. And I'm a little bit concerned that because it's a complex act um, that people may not realise it until it's gone through. So let's hope that it doesn't get through and that uh, we don't see this because it'll be very hard to reverse once it's through. Yep. It, well, you know, absolutely. You know, and, um, I think one of the things that uh, would be well to remember is that most of the amendments the government is proposing are exactly the ones that they tried to get through in 2014. Uh, and so, you know, I think that tells you all you need to know. This, mm. this is about uh, in, this is about development. This is about uh, making it easier to do mining. Uh, it's not about protecting the environment.
No, it's definitely not. Um, ben, thank you so much for joining us today to talk federal politics and, of course, uh, Victorian politics, given the situation we're still in. And uh, I hope that you take care this week. Yeah, you too, Amy. Thank you. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins, and I'm delighted to have with me on the show today Merlin Sheldrake, who is a biologist and a writer, and he's written a book called Entangled Life, How Fungi Make Our Worlds, Change Our Minds and Shape Our Futures. And it is a really fascinating read. I'm sure everyone's probably using that adjective at the moment. And um, it is really, really fascinating because fungi is such a mysterious uh, kingdom of organisms. And I'm so excited to to delve into this with Merlin now. And I welcome Merlin, who is joining us from London. Hi there. Hi, great to be here. It's really lovely to have you on the show and to talk about something which I know is really capturing the imagination of a lot of people recently. And it seems to be only gathering in awareness in terms of fungi and, and that critical role that it's playing under the ground, in the soil and connecting up so many different things, but particularly trees. It certainly is one of the things that sparked so many people's interest. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a real um, fungal moment happening right now. And in terms of fungi, there's so many entry points, I guess, to this topic. But I thought maybe we'd start at something that's pretty basic, which is thinking about what types or forms of fungi there are. It would be interesting, I think, to a lot of people to realise that what we think of as fungi, as in mushrooms and that fruiting body we see on the top of the surface, is not actually um, the full picture of what fungi can be. And of course, there are also things like yeast, which are also a form of fungi. So first up, I wanted to ask, given your experience as a scientist and a biologist, could you explain to us, for those uninitiated into the world of fungi, what it is and what types of forms it can take? Of course, yes. So, so fungi is a kingdom of life, which means it's as broad a category as animals or plants. Um, and fungi can take uh, a number of forms. There's, you know, there's a very, um, there are huge numbers of fungi. It's a very diverse kingdom of life. And some fungi are single-celled, like yeasts, and these fungi live as single cells and divide to form new cells. And um, they don't grow into multicellular organisms. But most fungi live most of their time as branching, fusing networks of tubular cells called mycelium. So when you see a mushroom, you're looking at a fruit. It's analogous to seeing an apple on an apple tree. And most of the organism is either below the ground or embedded in the source of its food, a rotting log, for example. And so mycelial fungi are these dynamic networks which pour themselves into their environment and digest it from the inside. So animals put food in their bodies and fungi put their bodies in the food. And mycelium is the way that they do this. And in terms of these kind of forms of fungi, what does a mycelium network look like? So there are many ways to be a fungus. And if you grow mycelium on a dish in a laboratory, what you would see is 
a fuzzy white circle, um, a bit like bread mold, that kind of fluffy texture, which is made up of all these fine filamentous cells. Um, You see a kind of fluffy white circle expanding across a dish, but that's a very artificial setup. And most fungi don't live in these kind of unconfined environments. Most fungi live pouring themselves um, between cracks and crannies in crowded rotscapes uh, in the soil or in logs. And so what a mycelial network looks like depends entirely on where it's growing. And it's one of these puzzling aspects of fungal life is that you can't really ask what shape a mycelial network is without knowing where it happens to be. Um, It's a bit like asking what shape water is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that would be a bit of a challenge. You begin the book describing an experience of looking under the surface or in the soil and what's going on with tree roots and and also um, mycelium and not just the visual elements to that, but also the smells of it, which smell seems to be a very important part of your area. And certainly when I've discussed fungi before, it seems like it is also an important element to identification of different types of fungi. So I guess I wanted to ask, you talk about being a field biologist versus being a lab biologist and the types of experiences a scientist might have, and also the different kind of power dynamics that one can have. In terms of field biology, for example, and and that experience of working with fungi, How have you got to work with fungi in that intimate way? How have you approached it and sought to understand it visually and through the senses? Because it seems like that would be such a challenge and maybe far more of a challenge than studying things that seem to proliferate above the ground. Yes, that's that's right. And I spent so much time wrestling with this problem of how to have direct and unmediated contact with my subject matter. Uh, when I was working in Panama in, in the tropical forests there, uh, the fungi that I was studying were these fungi that form symbiotic relationships with plants and grow out of plant roots and lace through the soil. And these fungi don't produce mushrooms. So I didn't even have mushrooms as a way in. And so when I went to, to collect samples, I'd usually be collecting samples of soil, which I'd then uh, extract DNA from or extract various fungal fats from, and I could use those chemicals to analyze uh, who was where and how much of who was where. Um, but that was a very mediated. So this did, you know, this weighed on me after a while, because in this bustling, busy world of the jungle, uh, there are so many way- ways to be a living thing. And the things that I was studying um, seemed to be so out of reach. And so I would also spend time looking at them under a microscope. And this was a bit better because I could actually see them growing uh, between the cells in plant roots in this very intimate embrace. And, but you're still looking at dead fungal cells, which have been embalmed and rendered in false colors. So there's still this distance that you have from them. So there are other fungi which you can study and have more direct contact with. Those that form mushrooms, of course, you can find the mushrooms and pick the mushrooms, eat the mushrooms, smell the mushrooms, etc. So there are other ways in. But in my case, it was uh, always a challenge to find a way to connect directly. And throughout this book, one really has their eyes wide open to the fact that there is such diversity in the fungi kingdom in terms of the visual nature of them, but also their behavior. There's so many different aspects of fungi. 
And it seems to be quite an unpredictable kingdom. It doesn't seem to follow a kind of set of rules. There are so many divergences in the types of fungi one can encounter. So I was interested in the introduction in the book because you were introducing, I guess, a lot of those challenges that a scientist would encounter in studying fungi and the philosophical things one might grapple with, which I think a lot of us potentially would not realise or or think about. And one of those things that you bring into the conversation is this idea of individualism or individuality and defining certain species as an individual and saying, well, that's that species. You really, really pull back the curtains and show that things aren't that simple, they're not that delineated, and our categories seem to be quite artificial and at times perhaps not the most accurate picture of what's happening, particularly in in regard to the fungi kingdom. So I did want to ask about this idea that you bring in about the individual and and also bringing that into the human arena and showing that, you know, even as humans, we're not necessarily that individual and humans are are colonized by fungi and bacteria and viruses. So, you know, even to define a human as a self or an individual is kind of a falsehood. Yeah, absolutely. And this this was really driven home to me when I was at a conference in in Panama, um, all these people studying tropical microbes, and we all gathered together to share our, our studies and our knowledge about these tropical microbes, bacteria, fungi, etc. And um, someone got up to give a talk, and they were talking about this group of plants that produced uh, a certain type of chemical in their leaves. And this was the chemical that we used to identify these plants and a diagnostic feature of these plants. And they said, actually, it's a fungus that lives in their leaves that produces this chemical. So in the, you know, in the audience, we had to redraw uh, real time in our minds our conception of what this plant was and and then someone said next to me they leant over and said no, i think it's the bacteria living inside the fungus living inside the plant and, and and i laugh but this is a kind of story that happens all the time in the microbial science and someone's like no actually i think it's the virus inside the bacteria inside the fungus inside the plant that produces this chemical and this really is the story of microbial sciences and most people in the microbial sciences are familiar with this kind of uh, intimate Russian doll kind of symbiosis. And, but of course, all life forms are involved with this intimate reciprocal dependence with other life forms that live in, on and around them. Uh, as humans do, as you say, we have uh, trillions of, of bacteria and fungi in our guts and on our skins and in our orifices, without which we wouldn't grow and develop and behave as we do. Uh, we depend on these organisms to, to be what we call ourselves. So this idea of uh, neatly bounded individuals is not something that stands up to scrutiny when we look in the biological world. And you realize quite fast that it's an idea that humans have to help us behave in the world and do certain things in certain ways. It's more of an assumption than a fact. And so Funky made lots of questions about our categories in general and individuality in particular, because you can have fungal networks which confuse with other fungal networks to form larger networks. In these networks, you have bacteria traveling through these networks like highways through the soil you have bacteria surfing along the slimy film that coats these fungal cells to navigate the cluttered obstacle course of the soil Uh, you have these fungal networks which are growing in and around plant cells and nourishing plants and being nourished in return by plants sustaining these plant ecosystems which would not otherwise be able to survive or indeed uh, would not have evolved in the first place in the way that they have So fungi are these fundamentally interconnected organisms, and they make literal this very 
basic principle of ecology, which is uh, that of the relationships between organisms and the relationships between organisms and the places in which they live. Um, so these are some of these ideas about individuality. And it's just an example of the sort of question that fungi can raise for us to, to challenge some of our uh, well-worn human totems. Mm. And um, you use some interesting terms like it brings to mind biological dark matter or dark life, you know, not being able to really truly see or understand something. And this whole field is really so much in its infancy in terms of our true understanding of what's happening. And you raise following up from that point, this idea that scientists are always deploying and requiring the use of their imagination and that that doesn't seek to undermine science or it shouldn't be viewed with suspicion, but that it's actually an essential part of doing science, particularly in this realm of mycology and fungi. So I wanted to ask about your imagination and Certainly your Instagram is really illuminating and I think the videos that you've you've posted up there of how funky behaves, you can kind of see some of the things visually, like you can see spores being released from, from mushrooms above the ground. But there is, a, I guess, a limit to what we can see in these videos. How are you deploying your imagination and using it to start to understand what's happening when you're studying different kinds of fungi? Yeah, it's a really big question, and I think a really important question for us to wrestle with. It's often the case that people assume that scientists are cold-blooded, uh, hyper-rational individuals acting in a in a kind of um, you know emotionless and robotic fashion, which is totally you know, the opposite of the truth. You no, know, scientists are of course people with you know, whole intuitive, imaginative humans full of feelings and interests and um, passions and concerns and. And so the science practice of the sciences is always filled with this, um, these, basic, these basic aspects of just warm-blooded humanity. Mm. Um, and I like to think of the sciences myself as, as formalized curiosity. There's elements of formalized skepticism too, but I see that as part of the bigger picture, which for me is formalized curiosity. And curiosity is always driven by imagination and imaginative involvement um, with the world. You know, what happens if I do that? I wonder, you know, the sense of I wonder, I wonder what would happen if I did that. That's all this curious, uh, imaginative part of ourselves, which um, I think drives a lot of people uh, into scientific inquiry, um, or at least maybe once originally drove them into scientific inquiry, hopefully continues to do so. But, um, <laughs> but so I, th I find the way to engage imaginatively, um, one simple way is to examine the metaphors that I use uh, or that I'm being asked to use. So we're often told, um, we often have aspects of the living world explained to us using metaphors, often machine metaphors, you know, based on uh, mechanical uh, models and mechanical language imported from the, the you know, human life. And of course, we need metaphors to make sense of the living world because so much of it is taking place out of the reach of our unaided senses. Um, but metaphors are always limited, and that's also what's fun about them. Um, but rather than become trapped, say, in one metaphor, um, to realize that one's using a metaphor and realize that there are other metaphors too that you can use, so to switch metaphors. Um, so, for example, with the fungal world, there came a point in my studies where I realized that I was thinking about them as these kind of mechanical schematic entities that uh, behaved you know, in some kind of Game Boy logic, uh, a funny 
you know, early video game, 8-bit, uh, pixelated logic. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I wondered why. Why am I imagining these organisms like this? This, this is clearly not what they are. Uh, these are organisms engaged in the process of living in a way that I haven't been able to see directly or experience directly because they are embedded in the soil. Why am I trapped in this very limited view? And so I tried to, I tried to think of them in other ways as well and to, to demechanize them, to think of them as these uh, organisms um, unfolding themselves into their environment, um, sensing their environment, and you know, bathed in a, a field of sensory information and negotiating a whole range of choices and problems that they had to handle in order to survive. And, and that really animated them for me. And, and so that's an example of the way that I think we can attend to our imaginative involvement is by, yeah, it's by making questions uh, of the frameworks that we're using to understand it reminded me of a discussion you had with Robert McFarlane when I was reading the book Underland. You were talking about, with Robert, the idea that we're using very human concepts, even those kind of capitalistic concepts of you know a transaction between organisms when you're thinking about how different organisms like a plant and a fungi are interacting and why they're interacting. What are the organisms getting from each other out of this relationship and whether that is of use or not in your field. And I guess given that we have these frameworks or these, as you highlight, these preconceptions, they can kind of create these blind spots. And you talk about um, your friend David Abram and, and the role of preconceptions. And, of course, we all have cognitive biases which help us to operate in our environments so that we don't have to keep looking at things with fresh eyes but I was interested in how that plays a role in thinking about fungi and how one strips back one's preconceptions. And it brought me to that really uh, fascinating story you recount of being involved in a, a scientific study, a very, very, very interesting one, involving LSD. And I wondered if you could share with us how one can step outside of our preconceptions. And of course, this is an example of a scientist stepping outside these kind of traditional ways of thinking. Yes, so so I told the story with with my friend David Abraham, who, and the way he does conjuring tricks. And he learned this lesson early on, where he was doing these magic tricks around the tables in a restaurant. And when he had finished doing tricks, and people had paid up the bill and had left the restaurant, and they started coming back in and and, and saying, "What did you do? The sky was bluer than when we came in. The the sidewalk was you know, had a straighter line along the side of the road. You know, the car was shinier." And the rain was cooler. Um, and he realized that the magic strips were changing the way that people perceived the world. And his, his reading of this was that we use our preconceptions to make sense of the world. As you say, to, rather than to have to form an entirely new perception from scratch, we use preconceptions and update it with little bits of new information. And so it's our preconceptions that create the space in which magicians do their work because when the coin is not in this hand but you were, you sure, were sure that it would be it's your preconception that puts the coin in that hand um, and it's not there and your preconception is uh, is trounced by this trick and after a while the the grip of your preconceptions are loosened by these magic tricks because again and again they're proved to be false and so when people went outside uh, rather than seeing what they expected to see they saw what was actually in front of them and so there's this sense of 
loosening the grip of our preconceptions and allowing us to actually look uh, and actually try and perceive the world as it is. And I use that story because I find that fungi do this to us. So fungi certainly do this to me, and they do it to many people I know who study fungi, where they their behaviors are so surprising that many of the things that we I just assumed, these basic protocols that living organisms would abide by, were being digested and decomposed by these organisms, which challenged me to think in new ways. The familiar would start to become unfamiliar. And so in the LSD study, there are these very brave researchers who are doing the study, and they were trying to, to study the way that LSD might help scientists and mathematicians approach old problems from new angles. Could LSD help these researchers to, to think in new ways about problems that they were, we were stuck with or had not made progress with? Um, so everyone showed up with a, as a research-related problem and everyone had a bedroom, a, a room in a hospital wing in the clinical studies unit of a hospital. And we were given LSD and then uh, had an assistant to make sure we were okay. And after a while, when we'd reached cruising altitude, as they said, um, we were asked to think about our work-related problem. And so I was trying to imagine these relationships between plants and their symbiotic root fungi. And so I found this a really helpful experience because I, I ended up in this sort of strange sort of vision of being in the soil surrounded by all of these sort of alien creatures doing unfamiliar things and had this, this sort of unsettling journey through a, a subterranean netherworld, which was enjoyable and, and amusing and, and, and an adventure. But it, it's not that this taught me new facts. I didn't these are just these are visions, uh, psychedelic visions. Now, this is not new facts. This is not scientific information. It's it's you know, for me. It was. It's not even wrong. You know, there's no claim that I make about the sort of factual validity of these visions. But what was helpful about this experience was that it helped me to approach the situation from a new vantage point. It helped me to to see the frameworks and assumptions that I brought to this question every day and it helped me to question those frameworks and assumptions it's a bit like if the problem was a sort of knot that i was trying to untie the lsd experience helped that knot to loosen a little bit it helped to ventilate my inquiry and so for this reason it was very helpful and so the lsd in that case behaved a bit like the magic trick in the david abrams story in the sense that it it made the familiar uh, seem unfamiliar and in doing so opened up new avenues of inquiry and made open questions seem more exciting and more comfortable. It sounds like it would have been very, very helpful. And I think visually some fungi are what we expect and I guess conform to the stereotype of what we think is a mushroom, the fruiting body that's on top of the ground. But there are also some fungi that when I look at them, they seem so otherworldly that that also kind of jolts me out of my preconceptions and even just my ideas of what nature is and what it should look like. And there's some just a, a wealth of imagery on Instagram from people who are just as obsessed about fungi than, than me or you. But um, there was one on your Instagram feed, you you shared a spore release from a puffball of fungi, a fungi puffball, and it showed this huge release of spores coming out of it. 
And just seeing that up close and kind of seeing the process that you would not get the privilege to see as a, a basic observer without all of that setup opens your mind to the fact that they're doing things that nothing else does. And one of the things I wanted to ask about that, particularly about spores, I hadn't really thought about the role of spores or the function of them and, uh, and what they can actually do and why a mushroom releases spores. And I wanted to ask about that. What is a mushroom doing? What is a puffball doing when it's releasing spores? Because as you say, fungi produce 50 megatons of them every year, which is equivalent to the weight of 500,000 blue whales. <laughs> I know it's an amazing fact, isn't it? Yeah. So spores, the fungi use spores a bit like plants use seeds to disperse themselves. And like plants, fungi are, um, they live their lives embedded in their environments. They don't have twitchy muscular bodies like animals. They can't walk, bite, fly, swim. And so to move from place to place, they produce these spores. And spores, many types of spore travel um, in the air. They're very light. And, and with the puffball, you can see this um, emanation of spores being ejected into the air and it's like a, a current of particles and what's amazing is fungi are the largest source of living particles in the air so there's 50 million tons of fungal spores produced every year they drift up into the stratosphere and they influence the weather they nucleate water droplet formation and they um, they affect patterns of precipitation and um, it's a really big deal and so these spores are traveling around and then when they settle, they, uh, they can start growing into a new fungus. So, so really, it's a disperse, dispersal strategy. And there are many ways to do it. You know, so we talk about these, the puffball, which is you know, ejecting spores into the air. Uh, but many types of fungus don't do that. And they produce spores which travel in other ways. So some of them, for example, um, truffles are perhaps the most famous example of a fungus which produces spores which aren't adapted to air travel. Because truffles live underground in tombs in the soil and they don't look appealing because they look like kind of clods clods of fungus but they smell very pungently and they produce a very elaborate um, bouquet of aromatic chemicals which can travel through through the soil and then into the air and travel through the air and then reach an animal nose and uh, be so curious and fascinating to that animal nose that the animal will drop what they're doing and run after this scent and dig up the truffle, eat it, carry it to a new place and deposit the spores in its feces. So these truffle-producing fungi have worked out an entirely different way to deal with the problem of getting around. It reminded me, I can't find the exact line now, but you were referencing the fact that the smell of a truffle seems to have evolved over such a long period of time. And um, obviously, in order to survive and spread its spores around, it needed to generate the greatest smell for its purpose or intentions. So I was interested in the, the role of evolution, given that you go through in certainly in one section of the book about some of the oldest forms of fungi that have been proven or shown to be in existence and that, you know, some of these forms of fungi are still here and some of their behaviours are still in practice. And I was really interested in, in that and how evolution plays such an important role in the life of fungi as well. Absolutely. And, and so with truffles, I think of these organisms, you know, that the, the the truffles that survive the best will be the ones who produce aromas 
that are most appealing to their most effective spore dispersers. So you can think of a truffle's smell as a fungus's portrait in scent of animal fascination, in the same way that flowers are a kind of vegetal portrait in color and form of animal visual fascination. You know, there are orchids um, that mimic perfectly the bodily form of uh, female bees and entice male bees with this sexualized, um, a sexualized rendering of their animal mate. So this is a, a common theme in evolution where you have a, a co-evolutionary dance over thousands and thousands of years. And fungi do this all the time and have played, played roles in the evolution of many organisms. So for example, plants, when the ancestors of plants were algae, these water-dwelling photosynthetic organisms that were living in a kind of nutrient broth um, and when they washed up onto the soggy shores of lakes and rivers about 500 million years ago, they were faced with a new challenge. And the challenge was, how do they extract the nutrients from the ground? Uh, how do they uh, take up water from the ground? You know, they're used to, used to being stewed in their water and in their nutrients. And now there's a new kind of problem. So what happened, we think, is that they struck up a relationship with fungi. And these fungi are experts at exploring and foraging in the ground. And so the fungus behaved as their root system. Um, the, the alga photosynthesized and ate light and carbon dioxide in this process of photosynthesis and gave the fungus energy-containing carbon compounds like sugars in exchange for nutrients and water that the fungus could find from the soil. And so for the first 50 million years of plant life on land, fungi were the roots of plants. And so roots, plant roots followed fungi into being. And to this day, all plants uh, have these relationships with fungi in their roots. Um, 90% of plants have them, um, and the remaining 10% have less, uh, less formal relationships, but they still have fungi living within them in their leaves and in their shoots. And so what we call plants are really algae that have evolved to farm fungi and fungi that have evolved to farm algae. And when you look at a plant, you're looking at the outcome of a co-evolutionary story with fungi that continues to this day and will continue long into the future. Oh, gosh, that's so fascinating. And in that section when you were talking about truffles, it did surprise me that you were saying that truffles have long been associated with sex, that they are an outcome of a sexual encounter, and that in particular allure underpins many types of fungal sex. And I was interested in the concept, I think, of mating types and how different types of fungi find mates. And I wondered if you could share with us that um, really interesting relationship. Yeah, so fungal sex is, is a very large and strange subject that we don't understand nearly as much as we should. And it's very confusing. And fungi do sex in so many different ways. But in a simple case where you have two mating types approximately equivalent to our sexes, and you can have, so for example, with truffles, you have two mating types. To make a new truffle, those two mating types have to meet with each other and um, combine their DNA, combine their genetic material to produce a new truffle. Um, to find each other, they have to use pheromones to do so. You know, otherwise, they wouldn't stand a chance. So like many types of organisms, they use a chemical. This is the, what I mean by this allure. The formation of a truffle is underpinned by allure to allow these mating types to find each other. But once they've found each other, um, either mating type can play the maternal or the paternal role. The maternal role being the one that uh, provides the 
flesh that grows into the new organism and the male, the paternal role, providing just the genetic information. So it's as if humans were intersexual and could play the role either as male or female, but you still have to meet someone of the opposite mating type. Then this is a very simple example in the fungal world. There are fungal uh, species that have about 23,000 mating types, and we don't understand nearly as much as we should about how they uh, how they go about regulating this huge sexual diversity. Um, but it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating subject. And many fungi, of course, can reproduce without sex. You can take a fragment of a fungal network and it can turn into an entirely new organism. And you could do that potentially forever. So you know, fungi under the right conditions um, can be immortal, effectively immortal. <laughs> Lucky them. Um, I was shocked when we were thinking about how that genetic transfer is occurring um, and how they combine, I guess, when they're having sex. In one section, you were writing about how a lot of um, fungi can get that DNA test and you can kind of figure out what a fungi is comprised of and if it's the same type of fungi. Because as you say, the mycelium networks are spread out, you know, across kilometers underneath the ground. And it's very, very hard to actually know which one is which and if it's the same one. And I was wondering about that DNA and genetics and how one brings that in and and what significance does it have when you're studying fungi under the ground as a scientist, as a biologist? I'm sure there are many questions that a biologist is looking at when they're utilising things like DNA and genomic sequencing. Yes, so there are lots of questions you can ask. Um, Fungi are uh, a bit strange with the way that they deal with their genetics and and it's not always straightforward at all so for example within a fungal network or rather in an animal body when you look at an animal cell in almost all animal cells you'd see a a kind of a boundary which is a membrane and you'd see inside that cell you'd see a nucleus which is where the dna is contained and cells were called cells by robert hook in the 17th century when he looked at cork cells under a microscope and saw that they looked like rooms. Cella means room in Latin. Um, so he, like a monk's cell, you know, with a bed and a desk, a neatly bounded room. And so we, we have cells that behave more like that almost all of the time. But fungi don't have these neat separations between cells. And in fungal networks, nuclei can pass in flocks along these networks from A to B. And so they have these kind of delocalized nuclei passing through fungal networks, often in uh, remarkably rhythmic patterns and kind of pulses. Um, The nuclear traffic through fungal networks is a really fascinating subject. Uh, And I have some videos of this on my uh, Instagram. You can have even in a single spore, you can have multiple nuclei and multiple nuclei from different origins, from different fungi. So it's not always straightforward to go about just applying the genetic tools that we have developed for animals and plants onto fungi. In some cases, you can do it. In many cases, it's very complicated. But the sort of questions that I was dealing with most of the time um, are quite simple questions um, about who's where. And these are questions that you, you know, it's a bit like a paternity test. You know, you can use a bit of a DNA, which you can use to identify that type of fungus. And if you sequence all the DNA in a sample, you can build a picture of the community. You know, what, what fungal species are here? more or less, you know, it's always a bit approximate. But that's quite a big deal, because then you can start to find out who lives where and when. And just being able to do that is a big advance on before, because with a microscope, you can't distinguish between all these fungal types. So that's one thing that I was using DNA, DNA for. There are many others, of course. 
Absolutely. And it does bring to mind discussions around fungal behavior and coordination and what's mycelial coordination. And, you know, you think of humans, for example, we have a brain, um, we have a spine, a, a central nervous system with nerves that, you know, come out into all different areas. And that's how we sense things. But then as you write in this book, Fungi is just so different in that regard. There is no central nervous system. There isn't technically a brain. And um, it reminded me about the fact that you said there were a couple of fields of science that have helped you start to understand how fungi may behave or what the mechanisms are for them being able to, to sense different things, to make decisions about where to grow out to. And one of those was about slime molds that are not a fungi, which is interesting, although mold, as you say, true mold is a fungus. But I wanted to ask about, you know, that concept of a brain and a central nervous system and, you know, decision making and how that's happening. And obviously it is, as you say, such an early area of research, but where are we at in terms of understanding how, for example, a mycelium network is making decisions about where it should grow and what material it should eat. Where are we at with that? Yes, yeah, so we know we know that fungi can coordinate their behaviors and can coordinate their growth with amazing precision. And um, if you have a fungus growing on a block of wood and you produce another block of wood and place it near that block of wood, the fungus will grow out from the original block of wood in all directions. And when it touches the new block of wood, it will start thickening the connections uh, with the new block of wood and will start retracting the connections that it was sending out in an exploratory fashion, but which don't actually lead to any new food. So these networks continually remodel themselves. And to do so, they need to be able to integrate these many data streams that are flowing into their body through their senses. Fungi can detect light, temperature, pressure, uh, all sorts of chemicals, acidity, gravity. They're sensing sensitive bodies. And they raise all these questions for us, as you say, because they don't have a brain. They don't have a center of operation. We're so used to looking for centers of operation that this is something that really confuses us. And slime molds have been a big way in, as you say, to this, to this question, because not only do slime molds not have a brain, but slime molds are one giant cell. There's nothing that resembles a, a neuron. So these brainless organisms are able to navigate mazes um, solve all sorts of spatial puzzles and yet uh, don't seem to be able to have some, they don't have some central place where they can integrate these data streams. So how they do this is the question. And, and we're really not that sure when it comes to fungi. With slime molds, they use oscillations that travel along uh, their various arms, the branches of the network, and these oscillations combine and reinforce each other um, in a kind of sort of rhythmic and less rhythmic fashions. Um, people describe them as a, as a kind of analog computer. And um, fungi seem to be doing something similar, but we're not exactly sure how they're doing it. You know, they pass chemicals through their network, but that's quite slow. Um, they change the, you know, the flow of liquid through their network. That could be uh, an important part in the way that they coordinate their behavior and can send information from one part of the network to another. Um, in very fascinating studies have found that some many types of fungi conduct impulses of electrical activity analogous to the impulses that travel in animal nerve cells. Um, and this is a very promising 
possibility and and would suggest that fungi use electrical impulses to coordinate their behavior across larger distances. And so um, these are all really big questions right now in the fungal world. And, and at its core, what we're talking about is how they integrate um, perception with action. This is really the question. And given that they don't have a centralized place to do so, uh, they must do so a little bit everywhere. And so fungal coordination seems to take place nowhere in particular and yet everywhere at once. And this is one of these um, confusing aspects of fungal life that the more you think about it, if you think about it just for a couple of minutes, it it just gets even more confusing. There's a, a, a sort of delicious sense of vertigo, um, I find. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. I can't really imagine doing this work all the time, every day, and having so many mental puzzles that come <laughs> up and <laughs> you feel like you're in a parallel universe and <laughs> everything's very different. <laughs> One of the things that was really funny, because there are some funny parts in this book, was the fact that slime molds are able to find the quickest exit out of an Ikea, which I feel like is probably one of the greatest gifts it could possibly give me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was just amazing to think about that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's my, my, I have this funny friend who, who keeps slime molds. And, and so he was getting lost in this Ikea store. And, and he, so he built this a miniature version of the Ikea store, the same ground plan. Um, and exposed his slime molds, put his slime molds into this maze. Um, and you know, his his joke was that he can't get out of an IKEA store without asking people who work there to help him to point him to the exit. Um, but without anyone to point him to the exit, the slime molds were very quickly able to find their way out of the store. So his joke was that the slime molds are smarter than him when it comes to IKEA store <laughs> navigation. And that's a recurring theme with these network-based organisms: the way that they can they deal with complex spatial problems does seem to be more effective and more efficient than human minds. Mm. It's not that surprising when I think about it that they're so good at that. I mean, they've had so many millions of years to evolve and be good at that, I guess. I did want to ask about, you know, in the second chapter when you're talking about mycelium and, and we've just mentioned there, you know, that idea of a brain and a central nervous system, I wanted to just clarify the idea of hyphae and hyphal tips and what that really is in terms of the mycelium and mycelial network. And if someone's trying to understand the role of hyphal tips or what they are and what they might look like, I wondered if you could just shed some light on that and what role they play within the mycelium network. Yeah, so if you imagine starting with a single spore and then imagine a spore sprouting to produce a single uh, elongating cell. And fungal cells are called hyphae. So this, this would be a single hypha. And hyphae grow from their tips. So rather than dividing and piling layers of cells on top of each other, which is what we do in most of our body, a liver is made by piling liver cells on top of liver cells. Our fungal cells, they grow by getting longer. So this hypha would get longer, would elongate, growing from its tip. And then all this action is taking place at its tip. You know, and if you look several centimeters back from its tip, that part of the hypha has ceased to grow. Um, so the action is taking place at its tip, and that tip can then branch. And then you have two hypha uh, exploring, but they're linked because they converge at one point where they are once one hypha. And those two hypha uh, can branch again and, and branch again. And soon this one hypha turns into what looks a bit like uh, a sort of tree branching system. 
But these hyphae don't just branch, they can fuse with each other. So over time, those different branches will start to fuse with each other, which is where it differs from most trees, which tend to have branches that diverge rather than converge. So over not very long at all, this one hypha would have become a, a ramifying network exploring the space around it. And each of these edges of the network would have its own hyphal tip continuing to explore, um, continuing to branch, and continuing to fuse with other hyphae. So hyphal tips are really you know, where a lot of the action happens in a fungal network. And so when you look at a, you know, a collection of fungal tips exploring their environment, it's tempting to think of these tips as the basic unit of the mycelial network. It looks like a swarm of hyphal tips. The swarm analogy runs out pretty quick because you, um, in a swarm you have lots of individuals acting in a collective fashion. Um, but in this case, these individuals aren't individuals because they're all connected to each other. They're part of the same network. Uh, but so there's this sort of shuttling between, um, is this organism plural, you know, a collection of hyphal tips, or is it singular, a one coherent network? And in fact, it's kind of both. So it's mycelium is a, a growth form that challenges our animal imaginations. Yeah, thank you. That was such a beautiful and very clear description. <laughs> I feel like I understand that really much better. I wanted to talk a little bit about the fact that Humans, animals and plants seem to be quite reliant on fungi, you know, in a very essential way for our survival. And we've kind of referenced that already in terms of our microbiome and the fact that fungi, as well as bacteria, are playing a really critical role in so many um, human functions. But it also has a flip side in terms of not only being a utility, but also in some cases becoming pathogenic. And that can be the case um, in humans. And you reference drug-resistant fungi like Candida auris, which is becoming a superbug, a kind of concerning superbug. And of course, if your immune system is compromised in some way, you can start to see an overgrowth of fungi in a human being and they can get very unwell and it can move into the bloodstream. And I was interested in this kind of dark side to fungi because there is the light side and then there's the dark side. And so... I guess I wanted to ask about those behaviours or types of fungi that are, as you say, parasitic and or zombie fungi. And it is one of, I think, in my opinion, one of the most fascinating parts of the kingdom of fungi. And I wanted to ask in particular about a couple of, of examples. One that you outline is Ophiocordyceps unilateralis and its relationship with carpenter ants and what it does um, using its hyphae to, <laughs> I won't even describe it. I'll let you describe it. I think <laughs> you'll do a better job. <laughs> yeah, no, this is really one of the most uh, unsettling and fascinating aspects of fungal life. And so there are lots of types of fungi that do this, to, that, that take over insect bodies and manipulate insect behavior to accomplish some fungal purpose, normally spreading fungal spores. So fungi don't have these twitchy muscular animal bodies, um, so they can borrow one, or rather commandeer one. And in the case of Ophiocordyceps and carpenter ants, this an cordyceps fungus will infect the ant. It will start to grow hyphae, its fungal network, through the ant's body, and it will alter the ant's behavior. Normally the, ant, um, the ant's instincts are to stay very low and to be uh, suspicious of light and heights 
But the fungus changes, it can override this fundamental instinct of the ants, and it can instead make it fascinated by height and light. And so the ant becomes infected by the fungus and then starts suffering what is what's known as summit disease, which makes the ant climb up the nearest plant. And when the ant reaches a height that's optimal for the fungus, in some cases, in some types of Ophiocordyceps, a height of 25 centimeters above the forest floor, the fungus compels the ant to bite on to the vein of a leaf, the underside of a leaf, and what's known as the death grip. And at that point, the fungus sprouts a, a stalk out of the ant's head, kills the ant, and stitches it to the leaf, sprouts a stalk out of its head, and rains down spores on ants passing below. So it's a really, it's a, yeah, it's an unsettling story. And it's astonishing because this fungus is able to, you know, about 40% of the mass of an infected ant is fungus. The fungus becomes a kind of prosthetic organ of the ant's body. And when people talk about this, we talk about these behaviors, summit disease, the death grip, these are fungal behaviors. These are not ant behaviors. And so really an infected ant is, uh, is a fungus in ants' clothing. And this raises all sorts of questions um, about where one organism starts and another one stops. It's very confronting to actually see it. I was really lucky to go to the herbarium at the University of Melbourne and see one of them, which they <laughs> have frozen in time. <laughs> and it felt like this shocking scene out of aliens, like it was just speared and it looked so painful and, yeah, just really, really not of this world and a very... It was particularly confronting to think that it was so powerful that it could do that and to really just take over another organism and entirely change it. And I, I wanted to pick up on that, the, the way that fungi can change organisms and look at another really interesting example in the book, which was a researcher at West Virginia University, Matt Casson, was looking at the Massospora fungi, which infects cicadas and causes the rear third of their bodies to disintegrate, allowing it to discharge its spores out of their ruptured back ends. And then, gosh, like the description of flying salt shakers of death, <laughs> was pretty <laughs> effective. <laughs> but the, the other part of that story, which it gets even more disturbing, if you can believe, was that it changed the male cicada's behaviour and not only did they become hyperactive but hypersexual. And I wondered if you could share with us what was going on in terms of the chemistry because you were talking about the, the chemical profile of the plugs of the fungus and its links with certain recreational drugs. Yeah, it's a really surprising finding. Uh, Matt and his team, they looked at what was in these plugs of fungus. How was it chemically possible for this fungus to be altering the cicada's behavior? And so they, they, did, they analyzed the chemical profile of these plugs of fungus, and they found that these fungi were producing psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in um, magic mushrooms. It's a psychedelic in, when given to a human. And also um, cathinone, which is, a, which is an amphetamine, which is found in the plant cat, which has been chewed for um, a long time by people in North Africa as a stimulant. So it seemed to be producing amphetamine and a psychedelic. And, and how exactly the amphetamine and psychedelic would act on the cicada and how exactly this would um, alter its behavior, we are left to imagine. 
um, but we presume that these chemicals play a role in this alteration of, of the cicada's life cycle, this hijacking of its life cycle. But, and it raises all sorts of interesting questions because we don't know too much about how the fungus is able to puppet these insects' behavior, and, and different fungi do it in different ways. And disability has evolved multiple times across the fungal kingdom, and many fungi have reached the same conclusion, um, but from different places. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating study. Mm. It brings to light or makes it clear just how real it is when you say that they're so divergent in their appearance and behaviours and chemistry and, yeah, it just, I can't even wrap my head around it um, sometimes. <laughs> but that's what is, I guess, the beauty of the book is that you're bringing in so many different types of fungi as well and helping us understand what they are. And one of the really interesting things to me is lichen and I mean I, I see all around me lichen I see it on roofs I see it on cars even mm-hmm. <laughs> um, on fences and it seems to grow everywhere and I wondered if you have lichen on your car for example which I I've got to say I've seen um, <laughs> you know, what does that mean does that mean you're not cleaning your car probably very often but also what is so special about lichen that makes it grow everywhere so lichens are symbiotic organisms. Uh, of course, all organisms are symbiotic organisms to some degree, but lichens are real symbiotic icons. So they were these gateway organisms to the concept of symbiosis in biology. And it was through the study of lichens that we actually coined this word symbiosis in the 19th century to refer to the intimate sharing of bodily space without it necessarily being a disease-causing relationship or a parasitic relationship. So before lichens were um, before this lichens were revealed to be symbiotic organisms, the intimate sharing of bodily space meant either parasitism or disease. And so they've played an important role in the evolution of human thought, but themselves they are these astonishing organisms which are made up of a fungus, or more than one fungus, and a photosynthetic partner, or more than one photosynthetic partner, so either an alga or a photosynthetic bacterium. And there are these little ecosystems. Um, the fungus provides some parts of the organism and the uh, photosynthetic partner provides other parts of the organism. And together they form a body that looks completely unlike each of them grown alone. Um, it's a bit like in chemistry when you combine hydrogen and oxygen, which are flammable gases, and they form water, which is something which is entirely unexpected based on the um, outgoing physical characteristics of their constituents. So lichens are like this. They're emergent symbiotic beings. And they can live in all sorts of shocking, shockingly intense and inhospitable places because um, they can form these micro planets almost. You can have the fungus which can eat rock or can extract nutrients from the air. The other photosynthetic component can eat light and provide the energy for the symbiosis. And so you have this summary of life on Earth. These two major metabolic processes, which you find um, in the Earth at large, are combined into these microbiospheres. And this allows them to live uh, in obscure, uh, difficult conditions, prospering as crusts on the scorched ground um, in deserts, ability to survive with very little water, or living on bare rock, newly exposed when a volcano throws up uh, an island in the middle of the Pacific. Uh, because they can digest the rock and extract minerals from there and then extract minerals from the air. 
and through photosynthesis get their energy. So they're very amazing uh, life forms that challenge our understanding of, uh, of what's possible. And it did bring to mind mutualism and that concept because we've just spoken about parasitism. You say shared mycorrhizal networks can facilitate cooperation as well as competition. And it seems like symbiosis and mutualism keeps coming up in this kingdom, the fungi kingdom. And I wanted to bring up something else, I guess, that creates shared benefit. And that would be something that so many people in Australia, and I'm sure in the UK, appreciate, which is alcohol. And the fact that we get a lot out of alcohol, but that also um, requires yeast um, and fermentation, for example. And I think a lot of us who don't make alcohol or have an involvement in, in understanding how it comes about might take it for granted. And I know that you have um, engaged you know, in your formative years of interest in brewing certain types of beer and mead and wine and even cider. And I was really delighted to read that you went scrumping and uh, made a scrumpy or two because it is a really cool thing and um, I have had the fortune of trying one of them in Australia and I wanted to ask about something I guess um, to finish out the conversation that's a little bit lighter which is you know how we eat fungi or things that are derived from fungi and yeast and talk about things like cider and the fact that you you really kind of combined the history of science with cider making and yeast in one story. And I wondered if you could tell us about that situation when you were touring Cambridge and uh, happened upon Newton's supposed apple tree. <laughs> yeah. So I was, I was on tour of the Cambridge Botanical Gardens with the director and he pointed out a tree that had been grown from a cutting um, from a tree that still grows in the garden of the family home of Isaac Newton. And it's a very old tree, and it's old enough to have been the tree that dropped the apple that inspired the theory of universal gravitation. And for this reason, this tree is this venerable, uh, mythologized tree has been propagated in other places from cutting. So these, these, um, these other trees are clones of the famous tree. And so the director pointed out this very majestic tree, the Newton tree, um, which was growing there in the gardens and was also growing outside the site of his old laboratory in another part of town and um, outside the maths faculty. And he was telling us about this tree and, and he said, well, of course, there wasn't an apple that fell on Newton's head. It's, it's an apocryphal story. This, this never happened. Um, but nonetheless, uh, I was struck by the humor of this because still these academics denying that this story happened had decided to plant these trees in auspicious places around the town. And so the story seemed to be both true and false at the same time, shuttling in and out um, of possibility. And I'd been thinking about ciders and making ciders, and I thought this would make a good cider, these Newton apples. So I asked the director if I could take the apples and make a cider with them. And he said, no, I'm sorry you can't, because they have to be seen by the tourists to be falling from the tree to add verisimilitude to the myth. And this was just too much. And so I decided that I'd have to go and just take them after after dark anyway. So I went and I, I scrumped these apples with a friend and then turned them into a cider, which was delicious, in fact, and uh, called it gravity. And I um, had a lot of fun drinking it. And and it was the beginning of a, of a cider project, which turned into other ciders too. I then went to get some apples from um, the trees growing in Darwin's house, in Down House in Kent. 
and um, and turn those into evolution cider. Um, and there's many more to come, but it's a, it's a great way of dancing lightly around these um, mythological figures and, and turning them into an intoxicating beverage. Yeah, you can have fun with fungi as well and yeast. And you did say that those apples have their own yeast and that, you know, using the organic yeast that's on the apple instead of introducing one that's already known will mean that you're consuming, I guess, a yeast that you can't actually really identify. Yes, exactly. So when you use a natural fermentation, so just when you grind up some, squash some fruit and um, let it ferment by itself, you're using these um, these indigenous yeasts that live on the fruit and have fallen from the air um, sometimes into this brew. And it means that you have a complex community of yeasts, often a more complex community of yeast doing the job than you would do if you added yeast from a packet. Um, sometimes it can veer into a rot and become unpalatable, but most of the time you end up with a much more complex and interesting flavour. Just finally, I do want to direct people to your Instagram, which I've already mentioned, because not only does it have some of those really interesting visual videos that you can start to get a handle on what we've been discussing um, and see some of that DNA and the movement of the mycelium, but also, you know, you, one of the things and probably the reason why I decided to ask if I could chat with you was that you um, you got mushrooms to eat your book, which I just thought was hilarious. And, and there's a great video of you chopping off these oyster mushrooms from your book, which really, it just, yeah, it totally got me. Um, so I wanted to just finish that, the conversation by asking, I mean, that's a pretty great project, but also it seems like a song has also come out of that project. Yes. So this was, this was, um, it was because it was funny and it also was a way of, when, when we write about things and talk about things, it's easy to become abstracted. It's easy, easy to um, forget that we're part of the world that we're talking about, um, especially in the sciences. And so I, I, wanted to, I wanted to do something that would put me and put the book firmly back into the world of um, metabolic biogeochemical cycles that it was discussing. So I thought that by feeding it to a fungus, to letting it be to let it be digested by its own subject matter. And then for me to eat those mushrooms it would be a way to, to write us all firmly back into, into the story of wet, warm, um, living story of life. So it was, it was a way of um, closing the circuit. And the mushrooms were great, and that was one part of it. But another part is that we've got um, a sound ecologist, a friend of mine and my brother who's a musician, um, my brother Cosmo, and the sound ecologist Michael Prime recorded using electrodes, the bioelectrical activity of the fungus as it was digesting the book. And then he converted these electrical signals into a sound. And so these sounds that you hear, the fungus is not itself producing these sounds, but the sounds were a way of making perceptible uh, the activity of the fungus as it's eating the book. And so then Cosmo and I have turned these sounds into a song, which we're going to be releasing very soon for the launch of the book in the UK. So the, um, the saga continues. It's just brilliant. I can't wait to, to hear the song and hopefully I can play it for everyone listening so they can um, enjoy it too. <laughs> Merlin, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your brilliant insights and congratulations on this book, which is um, a real delight and it seems like something to keep returning to and, um, and to keep expanding one's minds and challenging our preconceptions. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. 
Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favorite podcast platform. But I do want to welcome onto the show now Associate Professor Sarah Holland Batt, who is a poet and uh, she's based at QUT, which is a Queensland university, if any Victorians are unfamiliar. And Sarah is also an aged care reform advocate and um, she's spoken widely about the issues within the aged care system. And, um, of course, they've become all too clear and obvious to us in Victoria in particular when we've seen these major coronavirus outbreaks in aged care facilities, particularly the private facilities that are under the regulation of the federal government, not the state government. And, of course, it has brought up so many issues and it's also... I think shocked a lot of people at the attitude that we've seen from some people, of course, not all people, but I certainly have been really shocked and surprised to hear people be dismissive of our elderly and to suggest that they were already going to die and that they were at the end of their life anyway. I'm just, I don't know, I can't find a word to say how disgusted I am with that kind of discussion because it's not true. It's patently untrue. So we're going to be talking about these systemic failings and also what needs to be done, what has been addressed so far and um, where we're at. And of course, we are still seeing deaths daily from aged care. And we even saw, as I said at the top of the show, at least 50 deaths that have been very much belatedly reported um, as of last Friday that had actually occurred in July and August. So we haven't actually had a real accurate picture of what has been happening in aged care up until recently when we've seen these delayed and very much unexpected figures come through. So I welcome Sarah Holland back now. Thank you so much for joining me, Sarah. My pleasure. My pleasure. Now, it is a really shocking thing to hear some of these stories that have come out from aged care. And of course, these aren't new stories either. I mean, there's a reason why we're having an aged care royal commission at the moment. And we have seen that interim report, which came out at the end of October last year. And of course, it still continues. And we've seen um, some discussions within this the hearing setting around whether the federal government had a coronavirus plan, an infection control plan, and whether they really put in appropriate measures to prevent outbreaks like the ones we've seen here in Victoria. Before we jump into that, I did want to set the scene and and ask you about your experience and your particular interest in advocacy in this area, because I know it certainly has a, a personal element for yourself and um, you've become you know, a true expert in this area now for talking about it for a number of years. And I just wanted to hopefully understand what the reasons are behind your strong and passionate and very much admirable advocacy in this sector. The, the short version of it is that my dad, uh, my dad was in aged care until he passed. He passed away this March, but he he was in aged care since uh, end of 2015, and we really experienced as a family the full gamut of the ways the system can fail you. So, Dad moved into aged care when he's he had Parkinson's since 2000, so he had it for a very very long time before. Eventually, deep with deep reluctance, we had to move him into aged care because it was just dangerous to have him at home. Um, and his care needs became so acute that, that it was really necessary um, to move him into residential aged care. And so 
Uh, when we moved him in, we began noticing issues straight away, small issues, uh, things like, you know, his clothes not being clean. It was, wasn't clear whether he'd had a shower, things like that. It's stretching to quite major issues like the fact that his Parkinson's medication, uh, which has to be dispensed absolutely on the dot uh, because it helps it helps people control their movements. So Parkinson's, as you, as you probably know, you know, results mm. in difficulties walking and so forth. And so the, the, the Parkinson's medication must be dispensed on the dot and he wasn't getting it remotely on time, which meant that he was having, you know, real troughs and peaks of being able to move and not being able to walk or coordinate his movements properly. He broke a hip uh, because, in part, uh, of, of medication issues, and that 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 basically made him wheelchair bound. We then were subsequently notified. So, at all at all stages, we were raising concerns, complaining, uh, trying to advocate for him, trying to improve the situation. We couldn't believe the kind of lapses that were occurring. Um, and then a whistleblower came forward, a woman who worked in the facility, uh, to tell us that a, that a carer who was on the night shift had been victimising Dad and had been deliberately pushing his wheelchair away from the bed so that he couldn't get up, had been verbally taunting him, had just been unbearably kind of cruel uh, and, you know, would leave him in bed in, in soiled, uh, you know, incontinent pads for hours with the door shut and tell the other care staff that he was sleeping when he was awake and wanting a shower. So it was really, really sadistic, incredibly distressing uh, staff. I was completely incensed at that point. I went to the police. Uh, I went to the regulator. I went to all of the kind of agencies that you're able to go to because I'm, you know, young and resourceful. And I thought, this is just outrageous. This can't, mm -hmm. this, you know, surely, surely the system will not stand for this. And then as I tried to pursue it at every point uh, that the system failed, Dad, and, and that really uh, made me then ask sort of quite serious systemic questions about, well, how, if it can fail dad, is it failing other people? And of course it is. And so then I testified at the Royal Commission and subsequently, you know, have read the Royal Commission report, uh, have read many of the previous inquiries and reports that have been handed down. And the more that you learn about aged care, the, the more infuriated you become. I mean, knowing what I know now, it is just an abject disgrace that in a country as prosperous, as well off, as advanced as Australia, we have such a sort of barbaric uh, way of treating our elderly. It's just a total indictment, I think. Yeah, it really is. And in terms of the Aged Care Royal Commission, it is ongoing. And we saw in terms of some of the kind of major milestones and pushback that we got from the federal government and also public servants around this issue of particularly the coronavirus outbreaks in aged care here in Victoria, we did see the council assisting Peter Rosen saying that the Commonwealth Government didn't have a specific plan for aged care during the pandemic. Now, I know yeah. that infection control should be a really major priority in any aged care facility, given that things like gastroenteritis can be an outbreak that can be really very much deadly as well, and the flu, for example. So it's not a new thing to have infectious diseases go through aged care homes. But of course, one of the things that uh, that really struck me, given that I talk about UK politics a lot on this show, was that even back in April 
we were talking about these major outbreaks in UK aged care facilities mm-hmm. that were completely mm-hmm. out of control, massive amounts of death occurring in these aged care facilities. And to me, if you would have paid even a 1% of attention as a public servant in the health sphere or as a politician, you would definitely be aware that you needed to do something to anticipate that this may happen in Australia. So I was kind of shocked to hear that that we really didn't have a plan. From your perspective, being such a close observer and um, a strong advocate and, and understanding the complexities of this, do you think that's a fair criticism to say that there really wasn't a plan, there wasn't enough adequate preparation involved for something that we knew was coming because we saw it in Europe first? Okay, so yes, and I'm dismayed to report that I've actually read the two documents in full that the government has has put up as evidence of a plan. So there's two documents. There's one that's the overall healthcare sector plan, which only mentions aged care 21 times in long lists of other things. So there's no section in that document. That's that's just basically a national healthcare plan. So that's the first document. And then the second document is a a document that's called the CDNA Guidelines. Uh, And that document, which is the one that uh, the Health Minister, that the Aged Care Minister, that the Prime Minister have have been out there defending, uh, and Brendan Murphy also has been out there defending as evidence of a comprehensive plan, that is not a plan. That is a set of guidelines. It's called a set of guidelines. And they're they're addressed to individual facility managers, uh, those guidelines, and they say things like, you must have adequate infection control. You must have an outbreak management plan in place. It doesn't have any... For four months, that document did not even have, under roles and responsibilities, it did not even have the federal government or the Department of Health listed as one of the entities, one of the one of the bodies, one of the arms of government that had any responsibilities. So in, in terms of called federal plan, um, I'm very unclear how a federal plan couldn't even have a role or responsibility for the federal government in it. That was a set of guidelines that were sent to individual facility managers who had to interpret them. So it was essentially just a, a piece of advice uh, sent to individual aged care providers. So there was no plan. And, you know, when we think about what was known internationally, uh, in February in Washington, the United States, uh, outside Seattle, that was the first time that there was a major outbreak in an aged care home. Uh, Two-thirds of the residents contracted the virus and 37 died. By early March, it was going through Italian aged care homes where scores were dying in in homes. Uh, By towards the end of March, uh, we saw, you know, Belgium was calling in Médecins Sans Frontières into its nurse homes because they'd been completely abandoned, where they found, you know, residents just completely abandoned in their beds. By the end of March, Spain had had to send in its military uh, to to help residents who'd been, again, left abandoned and dead. And that was March, okay? Mm -hmm. And the outbreaks in Victoria uh, didn't begin until early July. So, you know, we, we, we knew this was coming, in February, we saw it in February, the effect that it had in, you know, in an aged care home uh, in, in the US. And then in terms of what we've known progressively, you know, by the end of April, it was known that more than 16,000 aged care residents had died in Spanish nursing homes. I mean, that's an extraordinary number. By mid-May, it was known that almost 30,000 aged care residents had died in America and, you know, 14,000 aged care residents had died in the UK. That's May. And the government, during these months, 
had a set of guidelines. It didn't have any kind of plan. It didn't have any compulsory infection control training. That was voluntary uh, and people were allowed to do it or not. And, you know, only it turned out only 20% of the aged care workforce had done it. You know, no one did this this uh, infection control training that the government put online and didn't make compulsory. The government didn't make mask wearing compulsory. It basically had all of this time in which it could have come up with a comprehensive plan looking to these disastrous uh, examples overseas and, and working out what needed to be done. And instead it did absolutely nothing. It issued providers some advice. That's, that's the, the, the long and short of it is there was no plan. There was a set of advice sent to individual aged care manage, managers essentially advising them to come up with their own plans. Gosh, it is really shocking to hear that, but also not that surprising. And it reminded me that I was shocked to hear the federal government only mandated the use of masks on July the 13th. And that's surgical masks. It's not even N95 masks. And, of course, we all know that in hospitals now, the majority of doctors and nurses are using N95 masks in COVID wards. So, I mean, it is really so delayed. And it wasn't even just delayed. It was too late. By the Mm. time that these major outbreaks occurred, we had to see the state government of Victoria transfer elderly residents into palliative care and also yeah. other wards within their hospitals and even deny some people a bed in those wards. Yeah. And we've seen all these deaths. And I was looking at the statistics as of yesterday in Victoria and of the state's deaths, 532 have been linked yeah. to aged care. So, I mean, this is a, a, a major part of Victoria's coronavirus issue. And it also sounds like not only have the residents and their families been distraught and residents have passed away. But we've also heard that this has been a major source of infection that spread throughout the community as well, because if you don't have infection control in a place like a hospital or an aged care facility, things within the community, they go out of the community and they go from the community back in. Mm, So I, I wondered from your perspective, hearing about and watching the death toll rise, and it still is actually occurring. We've had eight deaths today. I don't know how many of them are from aged care, but, you know, yesterday there were nine and they were all aged care. So what are your thoughts on Victoria and how it manages something where the federal responsibility for particularly private providers where most of these um, outbreaks have been occurring are a real challenge. And it seems like this delineation of responsibilities has really led to a huge issue. Yeah, so, I mean, underlying all of what you're saying, well, first thing I would, the first point I would make, and you, you sort of raised it, is is that Australia has a very, very high proportion of our COVID deaths are coming from aged care. Much higher, would you believe, even though the numbers in the USA and the UK, the total numbers are higher, in the US, the proportion of aged care deaths is only 42% of all of their COVID deaths are from aged care. In the UK, it's 40%. In Australia, it's 75% of all of our national deaths from COVID are occurring in aged care. So that tells you something quite significant about the way in which those citizens, and, you know, they are they're human beings with equal rights to you or I, you know, are being exposed to it at a, at a rate that is so much greater than the general community. So... In terms of the challenge um, of the of the response, 
part of the reason uh, that the government has done so very little is because the sector has been progressively deregulated for about 20 years plus since John Howard's 1997 Aged Care Act. The sector has supported, so these providers who are now, you know, being ravaged, uh, you know, their homes being ravaged by COVID-19, many of those same providers have supported uh, lots and lots of measures to deregulate the sector, to remove federal oversight, uh, to reduce oversight. So in terms of why we're seeing such an uneven kind of response, why certain facilities seem better positioned to deal with it than others, why there's no kind of standardisation um, of training of responses is because of ultimately a kind of neoliberal philosophy that's infused aged care policy making in which the idea is that the government should, you know, should not be over-regulating uh, these facilities and that, you know, bad facilities will be driven out of business. But clearly they're not. They're clearly still in business. Um, and so I think the issues are, are multiple. I think there's been uh, policy making that has deregulated the sector. The regulator itself, the Royal Commission's interim report, called unfit for purpose. Um, you know, and you can you can see that in terms of what's been occurring uh, with with preparing facilities for COVID. So, I think the average Australian would be absolutely shocked to hear that the way the aged care regulator um, decided to test whether aged care providers in our country were prepared for COVID, it sent them a self-assessment survey. They were allowed to self-assess whether they were prepared for COVID. It was a survey that said things like, uh, you know, we believe that we have an adequate uh, infection control plan. And 99.5%, that's the precise statistic, of Australian aged care providers rated themselves as satisfactorily prepared or best practice. And only 0.5% of providers said that they weren't actually ready, uh, that, 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 that they, you know, could use some improvement. And when we look at the, the disaster, the catastrophe that's unfolding in Victoria, it's very clear that those self-assessments in which 99.5% of providers said, yes, we're prepared, were a farcical, irresponsible, negligent way for the regulator to determine whether providers were prepared or not had months in which the regulator could have gone to every facility, put into place, uh, you know, serious measures, standardised measures, and instead they sent a survey. And guess, guess how they followed up the survey? They said if they had any further questions, they would follow it up um, with a robustly structured phone call. Mm -hmm. So it's just shocking when you think about what the regulator should have done and what the government should have done. I mean, what we're seeing in Victoria is the result of progressive deregulation of the government adopting a kind of hands-off, uh, let the market regulate itself approach. That just doesn't work when we're talking about vulnerable citizens who can't advocate for themselves, they can't take their business elsewhere. So this sort of policy-making model that thinks of aged care residents as customers is just crumbling all around us when you see actually how vulnerable they are, how few rights they have. And so actually when you want, if you want to kind of diagnose the origin of the problems that we're seeing here, it's a governmental approach to policy making that, that is a kind of neoliberal free market approach, light on regulation, you know, and kind of it, it skewed in the provider's interest. Yeah. And obviously, you know, those examples of sending a questionnaire to self-regulate oneself, um, really, that's essentially what it is. It doesn't work in pretty much every sector we've seen self-regulation occur, including advertising standards. 
I wanted to pick up on a couple of things. Minister Colbeck, Richard Colbeck, has been under a great deal of scrutiny, and rightly so. And we have seen him appear before a Senate committee. And you tweeted an interesting exchange between himself and Senator Katie Gallagher. And it was quite revealing in the sense of his level of oversight of this system and also his level of engagement with the interim report on the Royal Commission into Aged Care. And I mm. wanted to, to ask about what your takeaway was from that exchange and also what we saw in the Senate when he was censured and whether the role that he's played has been adequate and where he's really fell, where he hasn't actually performed, where potentially an aged care minister should well, I mean, I think the first time that I just thought, my God, this guy has no idea what he's doing, was actually when the Royal Commission's interim report was released, and that was October the 31st last year, as you mentioned. And the aged care minister, who's entrusted with oversight of the sector, leadership of the sector, during the Royal Commission that, that his own government had called, you know, so the, the government presumably called the Royal Commission because they were aware that there was endemic understaffing, uh, neglect, you know, issues of physical and chemical restraint, people not receiving adequate care, issues with regulation. The government presumably called the Royal Commission because it knew there were really entrenched endemic chronic issues that needed addressing. Um, and then when the interim report came out, Richard Colbeck said he was shocked by it. Now, how on earth the minister responsible could be shocked by an interim report after listening to, you know, the first half of the Royal Commission, presumably following along with it, there was nothing in that report that hadn't been reported in the media. There was nothing in that report that wouldn't have been in his briefing papers because the Royal Commission has been running, uh, you know, as you know, off the back of some 17 other earlier reviews over the last kind of decade. So this is not the first time any of these issues have been canvassed. So that was the first moment where I thought, my God, if the aged care minister is genuinely shocked, you know, by the findings of this interim report, we're in a lot of trouble because that betrays a kind of basic lack of comprehension of this portfolio, a basic awareness of the operating environment in which aged care is, is under at present. Um, and then in terms of his response, you know, to the COVID pandemic, like you said, at that Senate committee, um, he was, first of all, he was asked the number of deaths in aged care and he could not produce that number. He fumbled for a full minute, um, after which one of his staffers, an aide, had to step in and provide the number. And I think that is just a kind of inexcusable oversight. He knew he was going to testify presumably for at least a week before he appeared. To appear in front of the Senate Select Committee without that number is just um, indescribably, you know, incompetent. Um, he couldn't say what the current numbers of, of infections were either. And then he was asked uh, when he had briefed the Cabinet about the Royal Commission's interim report. And bearing in mind, this hearing happened in um, August of this year. The interim report was handed down on the 31st of October last year. So we're talking about almost a full year. And after lots of, you know, hemming and hawing and, and, and not really being able to answer, he was unable to say whether he had even briefed the Cabinet about the Royal Commission's interim report, which talked about systemic issues of neglect, um, you know, understaffing, all of the issues that we're now seeing playing out. Uh, it, it's unclear whether the age... But he still hasn't answered whether he has ever briefed the Cabinet about the interim report of the Royal Commission. 
you know, and at that point where the interim report was talking about widespread endemic mistreatment and neglect of, of our most vulnerable senior citizens, you've got to ask, what are we paying this guy for? Why is he still in his role? After those disastrous appearances, he also got the number of uh, the number of de- he wasn't he fumbled with the number of deaths again in the Senate. So there's been a couple of times where it's clear that he doesn't even he's not even across the basic numbers, let alone leading a response with any kind of credible uh, you know leadership. After that, Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister, took some of his duties away from him, but has kept him in the role as aged care minister. I mean, at what point? Uh, do we say, you know, the public has clearly lost confidence in him. Surely the sector by now has long lost confidence in this guy. The Prime Minister's taken away his key duties. Uh, I, I literally cannot understand, and I haven't seen one argument, one scintilla of evidence of anything Richard Colbeck has done as aged care minister in all this time, you know, in the portfolio that's improved the sector for the residents. I, I just, I, I cannot understand how he's still in that role. It, it literally beggars belief. Mm. One of the other issues that I just wanted to finish on, because I think it's something that we do need to grapple with and confront as a society and as a community, is that we've seen some of the aged care facilities, I've I've certainly seen responses from them where, particularly in rural or regional areas, where the, if there is an outbreak, some of them have suggested, well, you can just take your parents home and look after them if you would like while the outbreak is ongoing, which seems like a really lacking response because, of course, uh-huh. there are some cases where usually it's the women aren't able to do that, but also the kind of attitude, societal attitude we seem to have mm. that's so poor and so lacking in basic respect and dignity towards elderly people in Australia, it had really has become very apparent, I think, seeing posts from people and see them to say things like, oh, well, they were going to die anyway. Did they really die of coronavirus? Maybe they died with it. These kind of things undermining the reality of the actual situation and also undermining the humanity of these people who deserve our respect. I just wanted to ask, you know, have you also noticed or or has that become more apparent to you? Because it certainly had to me, but it may be anecdotal. It's interesting you ask that because just prior to all of this, I had written a long essay about this very topic. Prior to coronavirus, I'd already been thinking about the way in which aged care residents are dehumanised and and figured in many different ways, you know, as as no longer being as valuable as citizens who are, you know, economically productive. And and this is a kind of really entrenched idea in our society that once you retire, you're no longer part of the, you know, the, the, the workers who contribute to the economy and therefore your life is somehow worthless and it is a profound kind of ageism and we've seen it not just among you know the the sort of shock jock economists who who are kind of trying to make a name for themselves at the moment you know going on Q&A or writing you know opinion pieces arguing that the economy is worth more than these lives but also among you know our, our, our pre- previous and current prime ministers so you know we saw Tony Abbott saying, you know, perhaps it's better to let nature take its course. The Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, described aged care residents a couple of weeks ago as pre-palliative. That is not a term 
That is not a term that uh, palliative care specialists use. That is an invention of the Prime Minister's. That's not a real medical term. And it's a way of framing aged care residents as somehow already proximate to death, somehow, you know, not quite fully living, not quite, uh, not quite dead yet, you know, and this is not the case. The average, the average duration that someone goes into aged care is for 2.6 years. That's a long time. That is not pre-palliative. That is, some, that is the final years of someone's life. And so in various ways, for a long time, you know, aged care residents and the elderly in general, you know, have been really devalued in, I think, in Australia, in many other countries as well. But, you know, we need to take a really long, hard look at ourselves, at the way that we value the people who, in many instances, you know, built the prosperity and, and the, the wonderful quality of life that we enjoy, you know, the economy that we have. Um, you know, we, we live in it. We live in a tremendously prosperous and lucky country and the people who are now you know being discussed as uh, expendable are the people who built who built that country and mm. you know who contributed to to the quality of life that we all you know younger people enjoy today and I can tell you having spent time not just with my you know my beloved dad but also with other aged care residents in his nursing home when he was living there they have exactly the same emotional depth, the fears, the pleasures, the joys, the anxieties that normal people do. You know, they have full, they are, in, in, you know, endowed with the same humanity as you or I. And to hear people discuss them as though they're completely expendable and we should just let nature take its course, you're talking not, not only about someone dying, but you're also talking about giving them an incredibly distressing and poor quality of death. And that is something that's really, that's missed, I think, in this conversation, that people have the right, you know, to die as good a death as we're able to give them. And, you know, my dad died this March. He, he had a wonderful death in hospital, surrounded by family, you know, supported, you know, as much as it was humanly possible with love. And people yeah. who are dying of COVID-19 are dying alone. Their families are incredibly distressed. In many instances in aged care, they're not even told that their parents are dying because the staff are just, you know, running around understaffed trying to handle, you know, the emergency. You are talking not just about the death of someone, but, of, you know, a really isolating, frightening, lonely, you know, and, and painful and, you know, awful kind of death, really. And so I think, I think we must remember that these are people, these are human beings, they have equal human rights as anyone else in our society, and they deserve a good quality of life in aged care and the best possible palliative care when they are actually dying. Uh, but we don't want to write them off, you know, too soon, like Tony Abbott mm. and some economists and, you know, even the Prime Minister with his pre-palliative comment. I mean, I think that's disgraceful. These are citizens whose lives are worth, you know, are worth living and are worth valuing. Mm. I'm so sorry, Sarah, we're going to have to leave it there, but I do appreciate your time today and your really great voice for people who don't have a voice really at the moment. Um, and I hope that uh, things do improve, but thank you so much for your ongoing advocacy on this issue. My pleasure. Thank you. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.